Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. How many of you remember where we are? Just just checking, okay? Last, last, last Sunday, Sunday before Palm Sunday, we were in Luke chapter 16, and we got through the parable of the unjust steward, and we were going to do a message on money and hell, but we only got the money part. And I told you, hold that thought. And when I told you that, Three Sundays ago, it didn't occur to me that there was going to be Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday in between, so you guys have been thinking about that sermon on money a lot. <laughs> well, that's okay. I, this morning, we'll deliver you from that, right? Out of the pan and into the fire. It's not our practice here to preach on any one topic at any given time, but we do preach through the Bible, and this morning... We've come to Luke and chapter 16 and verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And, said to them, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. As we go through the scriptures, it's really important that we make accurate observations, interpretations, and then applications to ourselves. And you could pluck that right out of the middle of the Bible and say, what? What is Jesus trying to say here? This is why we need to take everything in context and look at what's happening. These words come right on the tail of Jesus's parable of the unjust steward. A steward that Jesus is, and we can see here in these verses, applying figuratively to the Pharisees, the lovers of money. And just like the steward in his master's house was not dealing wisely with his master's resources, when he found out that he was going to lose his position, he canceled everybody's debt so that he could make friends with the debtors of his master. So he'd land up someplace, somebody would take him in. And in the parable, the master commends that unjust steward, saying that you have used unrighteous mammon properly. Now, this term unrighteous mammon, you have to go back several weeks, right, to that idea. But that's riches and wealth and resources, and while it's called unrighteous, it doesn't mean that it's dirty or bad, but that it's amoral. It's neutral. Money is neutral. It's not bad in and of itself, but what you do or don't do with it is what makes it bad or good. And in all of this, there's this idea of the steward finally starts looking at life from a perspective of investment rather than receiving or dividends. Instead of thinking, what am I going to get out of my position, my job, my power, my possessions? 
he starts thinking, what can I do for the kingdom of heaven with my position, with my power, with my possessions? And he starts investing into others as we are to invest into heaven, that we would seek first the kingdom of heaven. And all these things would be added unto us. We would store up our treasures in heaven where rust and moth, rust and rust and moth (laughs) don't break in and destroy right and so that's that's the story behind that Um, it goes on to say he was commended he says i say to you make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon that when you fail they may receive you into an everlasting home and again look at what we see in verse 14 now the pharisees right these religious leaders, they, they were very legalistic, which is to say they were very interested in all the details of the law, especially the laws of Moses, the laws of the Bible, but also the laws that the rabbis themselves made up. Imagine that. They made laws and then they thought the laws they made were important and everybody should do what I say, basically. And Jesus is using this to say, wait a minute. You're not using your position, your power, your possessions as leaders of the children of Israel, as religious leaders. You're not investing into the kingdom, but you're just using this as a way to get gain. I read this verse last week, but it's, it's bearing again. It comes from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 6. Paul writing to Timothy says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money. And remember last week, we taught, or four weeks ago, we taught you. That's one word, the love of money. It's not money, but it's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And it, it, it's, very, it's, it's a great indictment on these Pharisees that they're using their position where they might be introducing people to Jesus and bringing people into the kingdom of God. We read a couple weeks back where Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees. You have the keys to heaven, but you don't let people in. You lock them out. You don't even go in yourselves, he would say. And here he is now in the midst of the Pharisees. Remember, he had been invited to dinner. And at the dinner, uh, they're talking about all their power and position and wealth, and they're jockeying for the best seat at the table and all their privilege and all their status. And he starts having to explain to them, you've got this all wrong. You're going about it the wrong way. And uh, in that picture, we see Jesus helping these Pharisees, maybe, to understand a little bit of where they were going wrong. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, right, also heard all these things and they derided him. That, that word derided, the Hebrew translation, is literally to hold up the snout, right? To look down your nose, right? To um, hold in contempt, to uh, scoff at, or to ridicule. This is what they're doing right now. As Jesus is speaking to them, 
There's other people present, and he's using this. He says, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, started scoffing at him, mocking him, deriding him, putting him down in front of everybody. So he says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It was part of the theology of that day. It's not absent in the theology of many churches today, kind of a health, wealth, and prosperity type of a thinking that if you're right with God, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be prosperous. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be rich. You can live your best life now, right? And that's not to say that that isn't possible. By all means, God is a blessor. And by all means, if we live by his book, by his blueprint, we have a great chance of living a very blessed, prosperous, healthy life. But that's no guarantee. Some of the most blessed people recorded in the scripture, some of the wealthiest people recorded in the scripture went through times of great trial and loss. Job or Abraham or David or Solomon. You, you could just, you could go on down a list all morning long of people who had tremendous blessings, but they weren't necessarily living their best life now. They were walking it out according to a life of uprightness, blamelessness, and righteousness, holiness before God. And even in Job's circumstances, uh, I'm reading in Job in my devotions right now, and uh, even in spite of all the difficulties that he faces, he blesses God. He recognizes that he's the source of all blessing but he's also the, the one who allows these things to come into our lives, that they might cause us to grow closer to him. But these Pharisees would have none of it. That wasn't the theology of their day. And so they're putting up their nose, trying to justify themselves. Just something really quick. My wife and I have fun with this. Most, mostly, I don't know, I don't want to say which one. We both do. But when we start justifying ourselves, it's usually Mike. You know. When you're trying to explain why I need this, or I need to go there, or I want this, and you start down the list of all the reasons why, 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 and you start justifying yourself, we just look at each other. If it's self-apparent, if it's something that you need, we don't have to explain it, we don't have to justify it, it's a need. But when it falls over into that area of want, I want this, I want that, and you start giving up reasons why I want it to make it a need. It's not a need, and you're justifying yourself. So be careful that don't don't fall into that habit like I do, um, or get yourself a good wife like I got. <laughs> That'll <laughs> help keep us on the straight and narrow. Okay, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed amongst men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, again, esteemed or value. What is it that you value most? What is it that you would place be between you and God? Your idols, right? These things that are more important to you than God. We read in Isaiah, 
in chapter 53, in verse 2, it says, speaking of Jesus Christ, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him, for he is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he hit, and we hid, as it were, our faces with him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And this is, this is part of the human condition. It's certainly the pharisaical condition of these people right now. Here they are, jockeying for position at the table, you know, all these things that they can be proud of and brag about, and yet they're turning up their nose at Jesus Christ himself right here in the midst of them. A man of sorrows, right? If, if their theology is right, Jesus should be in royal robes with a full-on entourage riding on camels or something like that, but that's just not the way life really is. And that's what Jesus is trying to help them. So he says then, verse 16, The law and the prophets were until John, speaking of John the Baptist, the last of the great Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament, the law and the writings, the books of Moses and, and all of the things that uh, the Jews held in high reverence, their system of theology, their religious structure, that which they worshipped. They worshiped the temple, they worshiped the Torah, but they didn't worship the God of the temple or the Torah. And they worshiped the gold of the temple. And, and, and here he says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. I mean, I don't know if you've been in situations like that. I, I know, I haven't seen it lately, but it used to be a Black Friday thing. You know, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, where people get to the store, like at the whatever, dark hours, and they're all crowded, and as soon as the doors come in, everybody just presses to get inside because they, they want to get the stuff as quick as they can. And have you ever, ever experienced that or even seen or talked about it? That's kind of what Jesus is saying. There was the whole religious system, all that the Pharisees stood for, all their law, all their legalism, until John, but now... Since John, speaking of now since Jesus Christ, people are trying to press into the kingdom. There's mobs, there's crowds, there's people innumerable coming to Christ. And the religious leaders are getting envious. They, they don't draw a crowd like that. What's, what's this itinerant rabbi guy? Doesn't even have a place to call home, a place to lay his head. He doesn't have his own bed. He has like one set of clothes. He doesn't have royal robes. And, and why are they following him? But that's the reality, Jesus says, since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. The woman with an issue of blood for 12 years, pressing through the crowd, if only I could touch the hem of his garment and be healed. The people that are just gathered along the lake shore, give us something to eat. And he multiplies the loaves and fish and 5,000 plus women and children are fed that day. Everywhere he goes, they bring the lame and the maimed and the crippled and the blind, the demon possessed. And they just, they, they, they're surrounding him all day from sun up to sundown. And he's healing and preaching and teaching. And people just want, want Jesus. They just want Jesus. God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Verse 17, and it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one little 
than for one tittle of the law to pass away. A tittle is a, a mark, kind of like an apostrophe that the Jewish people would use to just put accent marks on their, their writings. And so the littlest, teeniest bit of writing, Jesus says, none of that is going to fail from the law. You guys love the law. You love the Torah. You love all that. That's all good. I love it too. It says, I came to fulfill the law. I'm the law incarnate. I wrote the law. And not a piece of that is going to fail. So you don't have to worry about that. But what the problem is you're, you're worshiping the law and you've lost the love. Where's the love of the law giver? Where's the love of the law liver? If you live the law, you're going to love. It's just, it's just that you can't do that, but that's what was happening here. He goes on to say in verse 18, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her is divorced from her husband and commits adultery. What? You know what an enigma is? A riddle, a dark saying, something that you have to, I need a key to get a, unlock this. How do I, what is that verse doing right here? It doesn't seem to fit. Why did all of a sudden Jesus just turn gears and go a different direction in the, just in the middle of everything? He didn't. But again, you need to look at this in context. In context, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the Pharisaical system of religion, and he's giving them examples of that person who was trapped in that system but decided instead of chasing after money to give it away. And they were offended by all that. And he says, you know, the law is good, but the kingdom is now. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is eternal. And you guys are missing it. And then he says this thing, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Why did he shift gears? He did not. But you have to back up. And that's why it's so important to read in context. If you go back up to verse 10, Jesus giving application to the parable of the unjust steward is really talking about fidelity, faithfulness. The Pharisees were not faithful to their call, to their mission, to open up, unlock the kingdom of people, or the kingdom of heaven, and let people in. They were failing. They did not have faith. It says in verse 10 of 16, he was faithful in what is least, is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the righteous mammon, Guilty as charged, the Pharisees. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches, the kingdom of heaven, and even the king himself sitting right there in their midst? Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful with, with in what is another man's, i.e., his wife, you could put in there, 
That's where he's elaborating now, down in verse 18. If you have not been faithful in what is another man, who will give you what is your own? So really, this passage here in verse 18 is really not talking about holy matrimony as we know it, the estate of marriage. It's really talking about a relationship between man and his creator. In the book of Malachi, it's interesting, it can, can unlock some of this, but in Malachi chapter 2, we read that God hates divorce. In Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. But if you go back to verse 10 of Malachi 2, it says, Speaking of this fidelity, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Profaning the covenant of the fathers, the teaching, the promises, the system, the way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They have been faithless in their duty as leaders of the faith. In other words, they've been adulterous. Instead of worshiping the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, they've been worshiping mammon, riches, wealth, success, position. And this is what's really being spoken of right here. Whoever divorces his wife, in this case, their wife, they should have been married to as their spiritual leaders of the community, that would be the, the, the religion of Judaism, the father the religion of the Jews. But they've divorced that and married another. Money. They, that's committing adultery. And whoever marries her, that one who has been divorced, who is divorced from her husband commits adultery also. Jesus would say, they came to, the, to Jesus at one point and said, you know, wh what's the deal with this divorce thing? And, and Jesus says, Moses allowed you a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. One man, one woman, for life. That's it. That's the whole picture. That's, that's marriage. It's super, super simple. And yet they had made it so complicated, and they had brought in all these other things. And this is what Jesus is really speaking to with these Pharisees. And then those who follow after you, you've divorced this woman, and now other people are following you. And you're causing them to fall into the same sin that you've fallen into. That's really what he's trying to say to the Pharisees right here. Again, this can be a little bit heavy, a little bit deep. I mean, it is. Okay, this is the Pharisees versus Jesus, right? This is confrontation. A lot of us don't like confrontation. But one of the good things about confrontation, it really lets you see which side people are on, right? When the masks come off, the hypocrisy goes away, then you can really see whose team you're, you're on. That's what goes on here. That brings us then to verse 19, often known as the rich man and Lazarus episode or story in the scriptures. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then we're going to back up and look at a couple pieces of it. There was a certain rich man. I said I was going to read the whole thing, and I just stopped. This is not a parable. At least most people that study the scripture would say this isn't. 
Almost every place that Jesus teaches in parables, it says, and Jesus began to teach in parables. And then it says the parable. This one doesn't have that. Also, nowhere in any of the parables do we see Jesus mention actual people by name. In this, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. And so Jesus is, is telling a, an account of, of something that's real. But in it, we also see the Pharisees, those rich people who fared sumptuously. That means they ate well every day, three times a day. They lived well. They were very comfortable. So a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, but a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sore. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. This sets up basically the situation, the confrontation. It says, Verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, that's the rich man, and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he might testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one was raised, will rise from the dead. Okay? This is a passage that deals with afterlife. What happens when we sh throw off these mortal coils, right? We shed this tent. We, we enter into eternity. What, what, what goes on after that? One of the things to be clear about, Jesus, as he's sharing this, Jesus speaks more about the afterlife, more about what happens after death than anybody in the Bible. He talks about it nine different times in the Gospels and in the New Testament here, whereas even in the Old Testament, you'll only find a handful of mentions of Hades, Abraham's bosom, those kinds of things. So, or Sheol, I should say, in the Old Testament. So let's kind of break this down just a little bit to kind of get an idea what's going on in this. Um, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. Certain beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus' names, by the way, means God is my help. You know, and yet God is my help, it says, was full of sores. 
and in the Greek that is oozing sores, and who was laid at his gate, in the Greek that is dropped at the gate. He was treated really, really bad. He's a beggar, he's got sores and wounds, and he's dropped at the gate. He's desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Man, if only I could just get the stuff that falls in the trash. That I, I would be something. Moreover, as if that wasn't enough, the dogs came and licked his sores. Pretty pitiful picture. Really, really, really sad picture. And in that picture, you, you've got to imagine there's a, this wonderful palace, this home inside is this rich man. Uh, tradition says his name is Vives. Um, if you follow into some of the traditional stuff, nobody really knows. But nevertheless, he's faring sumptuously, and then right outside his gate, somebody just drops this beggar there, this poor guy, and he just lays there wishing he could just get a crumb. The dogs come, lick his sores, and then they go to heaven, or they go to Hades, I should say, okay? So it was the beggar died and was carried, not dropped, by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Now, this idea of Abraham's bosom, it's a euphemism. It's talking about the abode, the lodging, the destination, the place of those who have died. Where do they go? Abraham's bosom. Abraham being the father of the Jews, but the father of all faith. They say that he is awaiting those in eternity, and by his bosom, which is to say, close to his heart. Those who he loves, he brings, and, and they spend eternity together with, the, with them. Uh, kind of, this is the Jewish idea of afterlife. Uh, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Doesn't say he went to Abraham's bosom, does it? And being in torments in Hades... Okay, that's the Greek word for the Hebrew idea of Abraham's bosom. The Jews called it Sheol. So as you're reading your Bible, you'll hear a lot of different places referred to in the afterlife. Abraham's bosom, where all good Jews supposedly go and spend eternity close to the heart of Abraham. Sounds kind of nice. Makes you feel okay about where grandpa and grandma go. Oh, they're at Abraham's bosom. Oh, okay, that's good. Right? Then you get to Hades, that's from the Greek culture, and that is the place of the dead. Dante wrote an allegory, Dante's Inferno, or, um, and, and it explains some of these things. There's basically three compartments in Dante's, or divine comedy is what it's called. There's the Inferno, where it's like the lake of fire. There is Purgatorio, and there is Paradiso, paradise and purgatory and um, the inferno, okay? So that's Hades. That's the Greek view of things. And, and Jesus kind of laying things out here, trying to help us see what it is. And being in torments in Hades, the rich man didn't end up good, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off. <gasps> there he is. That's Father Abraham. <gasps> hey, Abe, here I am. I need help, Right? And saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. What's he doing there? Right? Some, one of the things that's kind of interesting in all of this 
is that as Jesus describes Abraham's bosom, Hades, the afterlife, we do see Jesus describes awareness. They, they understand what's happening. Even though they're, they've left our present situation, they know what's going on. They're aware. They have feelings. They can be tormented or blessed. They can remember stuff. Oh, I remember. And recognize, that's Lazarus. These are things that Jesus says we'll be able to do in eternity. We'll have feelings, we'll remember stuff, we'll recognize people. That's part of what comes out of this. Verse 24, And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. A flame. The inferno. Okay, the lake of fire. Created for Satan and his demons. But those who choose to reject Jesus Christ are still eternal beings. We're immortal. We don't ever die. you got to go somewhere. And if you don't want to go to heaven, the only thing left is the lake of fire. It's not that God has created the lake of fire for you or any of us. We are created to live eternally with Him in His presence, His glory. And yet, there are some people who say, I don't want to have any part of that. And it's like, well, <laughs> there's only one other place you can go then. just a drop of water on my tongue, right? But Abraham said, Son, re remember that in your lifetime you received good, your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. God is my help. In all of his poorness or, you know, uh, depravity or despondency, I don't know, I'm using the wrong words here. <laughs> None of those. But it just in his desperate situation, he never left, lost sight of God, and he gets God. Whereas the rich man, who could care less about God and never thought about God, doesn't have that in eternity. Uh, but Lazarus, he's comforted. And besides all this, there's a goal fixed so that whoever wants to cross from one side or another can't get across. Uh, Kind of interesting in all of this, we see this bad theology that the Jews would have. The Jewish theology that there's a place called Sheol or Abraham's bosom, and when people die, they go there. The end. That's Jewish theology. But there's, there's a, a number of bad theologies out there. Let me start with some humorous bad theology, just to lighten the moment, if I may, for a little bit. Last Sunday was Resurrection Sunday, so this may strike a chord for some of you. It's uh, the Easter story about three liberal seminary students, okay? Three seminary students died and found themselves standing before St. Peter. Already, that's bad theology, but it's a joke, so. He told them that before they could enter the kingdom, they had to tell him what Easter was. The first student said, Easter is a holiday where they have a big feast and we give thanks and eat turkey. St. <laughs> Peter said, no, and banished him to hell. The second student said, Easter is when we celebrate Jesus' birth and exchange gifts. St. Peter said, no, and he banished her to hell. The third student said, he knew what Easter is, and St. Peter says, so tell me. He said, 
Easter is a Christian holiday that coincides with the Jewish festival of Passover. Jesus was having Passover feast with his disciples when he was betrayed by Judas and the Romans arrested him. The Romans hung him on a cross and eventually he died. Then they buried him in a tomb behind a very large boulder. St. Peter said, very good. Then the student continued, now every year the Jews roll away the boulder and Jesus comes out. If he sees his shadow, we have six more weeks of college basketball. Bad theology. And where do you get your theology, right? Many people, you, I asked, where, where do you get your ideas? And very, very few people get them from the Bible. Very few people have actually read the Bible to derive them from that. They get it from pop culture, from songs and music and cartoons growing up, or all smattering of places, but they don't go to the source, the Word of God. Right here, we're in that source. There's a couple other false beliefs about what hell is. Um, another one is a denial of heaven or a scare tactic, that it's some place that doesn't actually have to happen to almost anybody. It's common amongst our LDS neighbors. Another one is there's no death, okay? Only earthly suffering. That's from Scientology, if you've looked at any of that. Another is annihilation, okay? Just ceasing to exist. Actually, life is eternal. You never stop existing. But some people believe in annihilation. Jehovah's Witness, Second-day Adventists, and atheists. There is also reincarnation, the Hindus. And there is universalism. Um, everybody goes to heaven, okay? That's the Unitarian Church. And purgatory, off, mostly known from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I don't say this to pick on anybody, but none of those theologies are based in the Scriptures. These are the things that men come up with, trying to explain things they don't understand, rather than going to the source. And so Jesus is clarifying a whole bunch of this, okay? So this is kind of some of that false theology. Purgatory is a big one. I want to touch on it for just a minute and, uh, because it's so prevalent in, in, in our world today. But this idea of purgatory, it, it has that root word of purge in it, where people who died who still have a little sin left need to purge their sin, and nothing will purge sin like a good fire. Okay, so they go to purgatory, purgatory, right? This is something that was developed by the monks in the 13th century, Augustine, um, Aquinas, and it became a Roman Catholic dogma, and that's why it's so common throughout uh, the church today. And in that, you can work your way out or purge yourself through prayers and merits or credits that the saints have earned, right? People that are really super holy, they just go to heaven. They don't need to go to purgatory, but some of them are so good, they have extra credit on their account. And so if I pray to a saint, maybe they'll use some of their credits to get me out. Or Mary, she's the big one. She's got a lot of credits, okay? And I, I'm just saying this, it's just kind of how this works out, okay? But you can give indulgences. You can give money, you can give tithes, you can do all these things. And somehow, 
get sprung from purgatory, okay? That's kind of that idea. Dante's Inferno, the divine comedy, three different levels of eternity that people will spend themselves in, and the idea is to work yourself out of the inferno to purgatory and finally to paradise, okay, with enough work. But again, it's works-based theology, and what's so messed up about it is that you're dead, you can't work. So you're requiring all of your relatives, hopefully, like you enough to give their money so you can get out, okay? Their time, their prayers, that kind of thing. Again, I, I, I do this a little lightheartedly, um, but that's, that's the fundamentals of how some people look at all of this, okay? Um, it was finally codified in the medieval times, about 1500, um, by Thomas Aquinas. Um, and, and basically, they use for their uh, proof text something that comes out of 2nd Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book that you'll find often in uh, a Roman Catholic Bible. Okay, these seven books that were not part of the church, part of the Bible until the 1500s. They added them in because you need some kind of evidence why there's a purgatory when people start saying, what does it say in the Bible? Oh, I don't know. Let's add a book that says it, and then we can have our proof. Okay? But there is no purgatory. Basically, we know two fundamental things. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 8 through 10, that says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For saints, for those people who have confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord, they believe that God raised them from the dead. They're going to be instantly with God in heaven. They breathe out, they close their eyes, they breathe in heaven, they look at Jesus. Okay, that's what happens to a saint. The ain'ts, they go to the, the waiting place. They actually, there is a Hades, and they're waiting for the final judgment. It's called the great white throne judgment. It's found in Revelation chapter 20. And at that time, all the books will be open of all your deeds. And you'll try to see if your deeds balance out on a scale, whether or not you're good enough to go into heaven. The reality is the wages of sin is death. And all our good works are like filthy rags to God. So you can't get in by good works. If you're waiting for that, you're going to see Jesus at the great white throne judgment. And then you will not have to put up with him anymore because you'll go to the lake of fire. Okay? That's the reality of how this works. Okay? Um, and as I mentioned, there's awareness, there's feelings and stuff like that. Jehovah's Witnesses teach a, a thing called soul sleep. Okay? That when you die, you're no longer aware. But that's not what the scriptures teach. The, teachers, the scriptures teach you are aware and you know what's going on. Um, in LDS Church, we have proxy back baptisms, right? That grandpa or grandma or somebody from some register or list of people, you can go down into the water claiming the name of this person, and somehow that baptism affects them in eternity. Again, there's no scriptural support for these things, but these are very common in our community. Um, and again, the, the Roman Catholic, the merits. Now, do I say this to um, pick on anybody? No, I don't. I, I really don't. I hope you understand my heart. But here's the deal. Heaven and hell are real. And if you don't understand these things and you think that you've got your stairway to heaven and you just, you're going to climb that ladder and you're going to get there, you're going to be sorely disappointed 
when you wake up and find out that all you needed to do was place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. No church, no Calvary Chapel is going to get you into heaven. It doesn't work that way. No religious system is going to get you into heaven. You just need to reach up and grab Jesus' hand and say, thank you for paying a debt that I was unable to pay. You paid it in my place, and you are cleansed. You're white as snow. You're a new creation in Christ. You're born again. You're a child of God, and you're headed for heaven. And that's it. It's that simple. Now, that's salvation. There's something that happens after you are saved. That moment when you confess Jesus Christ is called sanctification. Or as Dallas likes to call it, spanctification. <laughs> and that's how God is working with us from now until we look him in the eyes. This process of fitting us for heaven and working off all those rough edges and those difficulties. And it can be... Um, kind of sanctification. Sometimes, you know, it's chastening. It, it is whatever God has to do. But that's, if you would, if there's any such thing as purgatory, it's here on earth. It's sanctification. It's not a lake of fire, okay? It's been said that this life here on earth is as close as any sinner will ever get to heaven. But it's also as close as any saint will ever get to hell. And it's in this lifetime, in these lessons that God allows in our life that move us towards him and bring us into a relationship to him or we look to him. We put our faith in him. We trust in him. That's what Jesus is trying to share. This is not what the Pharisees were teaching. They were teaching a religion of works, a religion of stuff a religion of mammon, riches, wealth, possessions, and all these things that are going to burn. And right at the table, in their very midst, is the very Savior, who if they would just reach out to him, could take him right to heaven. I'm going to finish on up at verse 27 on out. Um, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father that you would send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Man, if I can't get out, at least go tell the other people. Okay? Can you imagine? Here's a question. Which would you rather have? If, if, if it was possible to have this, would you rather have 30 seconds, right now, if I could give it to you, 30 seconds of hell or 30 seconds of heaven? I'll tell you what, 30 seconds of hell will probably do more for most of us than 30 seconds of heaven. There was a preacher in the 1700s. His name was Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote a famous uh, sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It, part of it reads like this, okay? This is what sermons sounded like. So if you think I'm bad, he was boring, he was monotone. But this is, this is a part of his sermon. It's out of the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. So, the, the God that holds your life over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect 
over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes and to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. Talk about seeker-sensitive. User-friendly? I don't think so. He goes on to say, And yet, tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Now, again, this is dark. This is, you know, I, 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 I toyed with the idea of getting some sulfur and lighting it and bringing it in here so it sounds like, smells like brimstone to everybody this morning because this is a heavy passage. We don't, we don't teach this stuff every Sunday, right? You can look in your Bible. You'll see what we're teaching next week. It's chapter 17. It's on faith, okay? But this is what it is, and Jesus, more than anybody, wants you to know that there is a heaven and there is a hell. I, I read from you out of the book of Daniel last week an Old Testament passage talking about eternal life. It says, um, and at that time your people shall be delivered, speaking of Israel, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's eternal. Those who are wise shall sign like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn, away, or turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So it's like going to a restaurant. Make your reservations. Is your name in the book? Smoking? Non-smoking. You get to pick right now where you're going to spend eternity. If, if, you, if you have not called on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's what, that's what he's going to do. He's going to keep you out of the pit. If you haven't called upon him, I'm going to give you a chance to do it right now. It's super, super simple. All you have to do is say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Say it, Jesus is Lord. How hard was that? The matter is, that means he's the boss. He's God. He's in charge of everything. Jesus is Lord, and then you have to believe in your heart. This is an inside job. I can't do it for you. But you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You do know that's what last Sunday was all about, right? That's why we celebrate it. It's Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. God raised him from the dead. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. It's that simple. You can pray that prayer. All that does is change your direction. Now you're heaven bound. Now comes the sanctification. Okay? But that's good. That's good. That means that God is working in your life. He doesn't want to leave you the way you are. He wants to bring you to heaven. So, Worship team, come on up. You know, it's going to be kind of dark and kind of heavy. You know, Jonathan Edwards preached that in 1741. 
an amazing thing happened. He would go from town to town, and as he was preaching in the churches, it was said that even in the bars, the drunks would come rolling out and confess their sins and ask to be saved. <laughs> Baptize me, right? And, and that wasn't even at the church where he was preaching. It was just a revival broke out in the 13 colonies. America was born again. It was insane. It was crazy. 34 years later, we remember the anniversary of the shot heard round the world. Something that was put in place by that sermon and that kind of preaching of Jonathan Edwards. Revival broke out 34 years later in the um, shadow of the church that morning, April 19, 1775, the British soldiers came in and fired that first shot on a pastor and his parishioners. And it sparked the Revolutionary War, the war for freedom and liberty in our nation. And now here we are this many years later. And what we have to do is decide. Smoking? Non-smoking. Where are we going to go for eternity? And are we going to bring people with us? I'll close with this thought. Y'all ready? Okay. <laughs> I just saw Jacques go that way. John chapter 8. Take comfort in this. Verse 31. And Jesus said to those Jews, many Jews will be in heaven. Many Pharisees will be in heaven. Many people listened. They heard. They repented. <laughs> they changed direction. And they're waiting for us now. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Did anybody see the reader board coming in? What's it say? What's it say? What's it say? Ah, read your Bible and pray every day. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free they answered him we are abraham's descendant and have never been in bondage to anyone how can you say we will be made free jesus answered them most assuredly i say to you whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever but a son abides forever are you a child of god are you a child of god are some of you a child of god <laughs> a son abides forever therefore if the son makes you free you are free indeed jesus is risen he is risen indeed amen Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning and an opportunity to come face to face with eternity, with a choice that we all have. I thank you, Lord, that you've made it very simple, that you've come to show us the way and that you've gone before us, that all we have to do is follow in your footsteps, humbly, simply, dependently follow you. We confess, Lord, that in and of ourselves, we cannot do it. But we also confess that you have done it. 
and have promised to bring us with you. So we hold on to that promise as we go into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.